Fake, fake, fakeity fake. Hi, I'm Jody. And I'm Vienna. And welcome to Imperial News, where I spend my whole week listening to the far-right podcast Rebel News and talk about the very real and not-made-up subject of race Marxism with my friend Vienna. We're gonna we're gonna go fast. We're gonna get number one in the race Marxism. <laughs> I never thought about it in that context, but yes, we are. Uh, Marx has entered Formula One racing, and uh, we will compete against him today on the show. <laughs> Riveting podcast material. How are you, Vienna? I just wanted to make a joke about saying we're the Sonic of Marxism. Um, <laughs> I'm okay. Um, yeah, would like it to be not negative 16 and like 10 plus centimeters of snow on the ground on fucking March 27th. Um, woohoo. I love weather being shitty and insane. Um, that's not a sign of anything to come. Sure, yeah. Also, I'm very over-caffeinated. Uh, I've had like four cups of coffee, and the only drink that I have with me for recording is tea, so we'll see how that goes. Nice. How are you? I am good. It was my birthday yesterday. Uh, we had a weekend full of not kids, so it was nice and relaxing. I bought myself a new chair and uh, had some red lobster. You know, it was good. It was good. Kids are back Happy now. birthday, Jody. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, kids are back now and all that fun stuff. But yeah, it's cold. I don't plan on going outside today or tomorrow where it will continue to snow. And I want it to be over. I want It's already spring. It should be spring outside, but it isn't. And it is depressing. <laughs> but I am relaxed from, from the birthday weekend. So that is good. But Jody, remember, this disproves global warming. It's cold out. Hello, my rebels. Hello, my rebels. I'm a good boy. I'm a weirdo. So this week is the week of March 21st to March 25th. And starting on the 21st, according to Ezra, Michael Bloomberg is giving advice on how the poors can deal with inflation. Which apparently has to do with the uh, World Economic Forum's you'll own nothing and be happy agenda, as Ezra describes it. This is the thing, we've, we've already discussed it on the podcast before, but I guess somebody wrote uh, a piece for the World Economic Forum that was like, imagine a future where you'll share things. It'll be like the sharing economy. And ever since then, they're like, that's what that's what the, the Great Reset is all about. And what all the world leaders, they want you to own nothing and be happy. And it's like, just somebody wrote an article. like that. <laughs> I love it, too. It's like always like, you know, these secret plans, and yet they put them right in the open so you can all see it, right? But only only the aware will be able to notice and correctly interpret. True. Mm-hmm. You gotta be, you know, aware of the conspiracy in order to know that the conspiracy is happening. That, that is going to be very relevant to the, the rest of this episode. 
But so Ezra's like he starts off uh, talking about Michael Bloomberg, and he's making fun of Michael Bloomberg's height. Like he spends a long time of just like short people jokes and plays a clip of Trump making fun of the fact that Michael Bloomberg is short. Like he goes for a long while, and and then it finally gets to it where he explains why he's making fun of Michael Bloomberg's height. If you're wondering why I am making fun of Bloomberg and Bezos for things about them that they don't control, like being short, Bezos for being bald, forgive me. I know it's not fair, pot calling the kettle black, but it's one of the few things you can do to express your disagreement with these oligarchs who rule over you. They really are oligarchs. Why do Russian and Ukrainian billionaires who like to meddle in politics, which they all do, why are they called oligarchs, but we don't use that sinister term to describe our own political billionaire class, like Bill Gates? Like, there's a lot I agree with him on here, but we still don't have to make fun of the fact that he's short. <laughs> just, like, he admitted, like, oh, pot calling the kettle black. And I just, like, looked it up real quick, and the only listing I could find about his height said 5'8". Ezra's height? Yeah. I'm taller than Ezra. Yeah, me too. Like, <laughs> okay, Mr. Napoleon Complex. I mean, he did say pot. I mean, at least he self-acknowledged. Yeah. Like, I mean, it's just, it was weird the amount that he focused on this. Because none of, none of the ribbing about him being short had to do with, like, the, the oligarchic status of Michael Bloomberg. It's just like, haha, you're short, you know? But then it's also, it's like using Trump to also make fun of Bloomberg. It's like Trump would also be an oligarch in this framing. Mm. You, like, <laughs> but Trump is, Trump is the people's oligarch. Right, right. I mean, the one thing that also never comes up is like all the like, like millionaires and billionaires that have been associated with Rebel News and have funded like the, the Shillman guy who had a grant for, for Rebel News employees. Uh, including all the the coke money that has gone into Rebel News over the years, so it's like it's like funny hearing this framing when the like they're selective about the oligarchs that they want to include into this list, you know. The coke money is why we support Pepsi. <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like, look at look at who he describes as being an oligarch. It's always like. Uh, you know, tech billionaires and well, like those and types of people. It's never like, I don't know, the people who own like mining companies in Canada. Of what ethno-religious background also? Well, I mean like... Bloomberg, Soros, those are, you know? Bezos. I mean, Gates doesn't fit that mold, but like... Bezos isn't. Oh, right, true. Okay, yeah. Well, he yeah. focused on Bezos and Gates, but... Uh... Yeah, but like, you know, the main example is Bloomberg and the always the main target is Soros. So it's like Yeah, yeah. Hmm. It's always hanging in the background, yeah. Yeah. So after he makes fun of uh Michael Bloomberg, he then goes on to talk about this article, which is again about how poor people can deal with inflation. And it turns out that the article wasn't even written by Michael Bloomberg. Like I was expecting <laughs> I was expecting that that would be the the sort of like where this is heading. But uh, it was featured in Bloomberg magazine, which 
he i guess he is like the chief executive for so like i mean that doesn't necessarily mean that bloomberg gave the like rubber stamp to say publish this article to tell the pores how to do deal with inflation but like whatever fine <laughs> jody it's called bloomberg he has to approve of everything every yeah <laughs> yes you'll read all of it um if there's grammar mistakes that's bloomberg's fault um same thing with Bezos and the Washington Post, you know, everything. Democracy di- dies in darkness, Jody. I, I, yeah, I, I was blinded by the light. I couldn't even see it. <laughs> so <laughs> in fairness to Ezra, it is a really gross article. So, for example, uh, Ezra gets really mad at the suggestion in the article that one can simply just take the bus and Ezra claims that the bus always takes longer than cars. And, you know, this might be true depending on where you live. But, like, the issue that I have is, like, neither Ezra nor this article address the fact that, like, maybe the issue here is that, like, our public infrastructure is failing and maybe we can invest in things like public transit. It's just always, like, you could either just, like, deal with whatever transit we have now because you're poor and you have to. Uh, and then Ezra's like, no, we can't do that because it all sucks. But none of them are like, well, why don't we invest in these things? You know, mm-hmm. can't can't have any public investment at all. That would be just bad. That'll cause inflation, Jody. Yeah, exactly. Ezra is then mad at the suggestion in the article, which is that poor people should just eat lentils instead of meat. And Ezra goes on, this part is not included in the article, but Ezra thinks that this is just an extension of the, uh, we should just let poor people eat bugs phenomenon. (laughs) But it's not meant to be helpful, it's meant to normalize you being poor and miserable and accepting it like they lived under the former Soviet Union, rationing all the time, dreary and gray. Seriously, I'm surprised they didn't go straight for their fetish of promoting people eating bugs. They're so weird about that. Uh, here's the World Economic Forum. They're just so gross. This London insect farm is changing the way we eat. I'm gagging just reading that. Here's another one. Why we need to give insects the role they deserve in our food systems. Oh, my God. The, oh, oh, getting nauseous. I'm gagging just thinking about this. <laughs> He's gagging just thinking about it. I mean, the article didn't even bring it up, but Ezra just had to had to bring it up to himself so he could gag over it. Live Ezra's on his show. just obsessed with thinking about eating bugs. I, it's so, this line is just always so silly to me because it's like there really is no reason to be grossed out by the eating of bugs other than your like weird cultural hangups, which I agree, like I have cultural hangups about eating bugs too. But I just admit that they're there and don't make some sort of like essential argument about my Mm -hmm. own cultural proclivities being like the right or proper way and that eating bugs are just like inherently gross. Just so. (laughs) It's like, well, why not get bug protein? Why is that so weird? I don't know. See, the real sad thing is because of like mining operations and like toxic chemical usage in africa a lot of um the like most accessible bug protein which is locusts are no longer safe to eat because the locusts have so many like heavy metals and like other shit in them and uh, they used they used to be a very staple thing especially during famines 
and like were considered a delicacy and now it's like oh yeah if you eat those you're gonna like get diseases from it i mean the the examples he brought up were like farming the insects which i imagine would like decrease elements of that but like yeah i mean like as i mean talking about uh global problems like that fieno is just communism and that's bad so true (laughs) yeah that is correct that is the other moral of this episode. We'll just might as well put it up front <laughs> right now. Ezra is then mad at, mad at how uh, Trudeau and Europe are trying to move off of fossil fuels, and how this will hurt the poor. Uh, but but again, like notice how when Ezra sneers about oligarchs, he never mentions the oil and gas executives. Which I guess in this case, it's uh, uh you know, he loves them and thinks they're absolutely right about what they're doing to the world and the environment. And we just have to listen to everything that they say. Uh, but it's well, the tech Jody, billionaires that are the problem. <laughs> Jody, the oil and gas billionaires are those poor, needy people who will suffer from any attempt to transition off of fossil fuels. That, I think you you are you are approaching, I think, the correct answer here. <laughs> So that's uh, that's how he starts off the show. But then we get into this interview with someone named Rachel Emanuel. I, I know very little about this person, but I guess she used to work for iPolitics, which is affiliated with the Toronto Star. And now she works for the Western Standard because she left iPolitics. And the reason she gives for leaving uh, iPolitics is because, as she puts it, the mainstream wasn't reporting on the negative effects of the COVID restrictions. And the only example that she gives is what she describes as the peaking of suicides during the lockdowns. And right away, once she said that, I was like, I know for a fact that suicides decreased during the pandemic. So uh, she is just factually incorrect. (laughs) She just straight up. uh, It's something we've discussed on this podcast several times. It's a talking point that the right wing loves. There is absolutely zero evidence that it's the case. And you might think it's weird. It's likely just because people are staying home. If they're staying home, they're around other people. If they're around other people, they're less likely to commit suicide. So they probably still are suffering from all the the same depressions and other things. It's just the circumstances have changed. And I mean, we still should try to make people's lives better as well. You know, it's just the, the weird fact. It's just a weird fact. Yet they it's. They really wanted something to like latch onto to say that these pandemic restrictions were bad. And they just thought intuitively that would make sense. And it just has never been, it, it, it has never showed up in the data at all. Yeah. Sorry. And like <laughs> two other major contributing factors are like, you know, being home from work, cool, less stress. And at least here, and like to some extent, kind of across like North America and Europe. There were financial supports given, so people were less poor for a brief moment in time. Yeah. So, yeah. So either way, uh, just flat out wrong. So that was one of her reasons for leaving, and that was already a bad reason. The second reason she claims that she left, and what she describes as kind of like the final straw, was that apparently she tried to publish a story on Christian Freeland about her deleted tweet holding the Ukraine banner that was associated with the far-right groups in Ukraine. We already sort of covered that a couple episodes ago, but uh, 
part of the thing is like what Rachel says on the show, like I can't verify anything beyond what she just claims happened in the sort of like newsroom. But her claim is that Freeland, because the liberals give iPolitics bailout money through the Toronto store, Toronto Star, was able to exert editorial control and squash her article. <laughs> so, like, again, really stupid. But, like, what would make more sense to me, and based on some of the things she kind of says throughout the interview, is that they probably reached out to Freeland for comment. And Freeland, it sounds like, responded to that request for comment and had explanations and or corrections for the article, which Rachel then refused to address, therefore leading to her editors not publishing the article, which she then claimed was like censorship and left iPolitics. That would make way more sense to me than that because the Toronto Star took bailout money that somehow Freeland feels, not only feels, but was successful at exerting her editorial control over an article in iPolitics. <laughs> the way that they think that, like, government grants work is so, like, weird and divorced from reality. Like. Yep. You know, like, you... If they were to put out together another bailout package and be like, yeah, by the way, we're excluding the Toronto Star from this one. The amount of, like, uproar and, like, just media drama would be unending. If they, like, explicitly excluded, like, any particular media group, especially one of the ones that are owned by, like, you know, the multimillionaires and whatever that fund the Liberal Party. Like... I don't know, just wild. Yeah, and the thing is, I, I mean, like, you know, you could probably give her charitability and maybe say, well, maybe there's something to what she's saying. But after she lied about the suicide point, it's like, that is just easily, like, all you have to do is look up Stats Canada to know that, like, what she said is not true. Like, it's that. <laughs> so it's like, I'm already, like, I have no... uh I, I lack any and all charitability for, for what she claims happened in the newsroom. So uh, I'm sorry, but I, I carry very little about your, your sob story about why you left your job and now work for Western Standard, which I believe was uh, initially created by Ezra. I think now it's like taken over by other people. But, so mm. that's fun. Yeah, I don't know if it was like created, but it was definitely like he was like the editor or something like that. Yeah. So now we get to Tuesday, and uh, Tuesday is when uh, the fun starts. <laughs> so uh, guess who's back? James Lindsay. <laughs> and James Lindsay is, is there again for an entire hour-long discussion with Ezra about his new book that is called Race Marxism, The Truth About Critical Race Theory and Praxis. So for those who don't remember, uh, we've covered Lindsay before on our streams before we knew that he was going to enter the Rebel universe. But Lindsay is primarily involved in starting the sort of like, uh, I guess, hy hyperbolic attitude that people in the States have against critical race theory in schools. So Lindsay is involved in that sort of uh, creation of that like fear mongering 
idea. But like he comes from the atheist community and we've already sort of been over his background and how he got from there to here. But this atheist who's against critical race theory is now working with a bunch of uh, Christian fascists to promote the idea that they're teaching your kids uh, critical race theory in schools to train them to be secret Marxists. So that is <laughs> that is where we're at today. And uh, this is how, uh, I guess, Ezra begins the interview by discussing how there aren't a lot of public intellectuals on the right. And so we'll play that clip. There are not a lot of public intellectuals on the right. I'm not sure why. I think it's the same reason there's not a lot of comedians on the right or movie stars on the right. I think the culture of the industry is against it. And uh, you either choose to go somewhere where you're liked or you're crushed and uh, converted to be a leftist. I also think that a lot of public intellectuals speak in a form of gobbledygook on purpose. They use jargon. They look to hide meaning, not make it plain. Uh, we can think of conservative public intellectuals. Jordan Peterson, I think, is uh, the most profound example in, in recent years. And the fact that he's a Canadian makes it all the more remarkable. I love, I mean, like, we could talk about, like, whether or not, you know, celebrity culture is in fact left wing but like the, the mentioning gobbledygook here and your two like identifiable people of like public intellectuals on the right are jordan peterson and james Lindsay, who are known for being just using a bunch of buzzwords and like pr profound sounding words while like hiding they're just like base right-wing traditionalism <laughs> you know <laughs> Mm -hmm. Gobbledygook. I I also like the description of Jordan Peterson as profound. Very True. very profound. Yeah. But yes, there's tons of right wingers in Hollywood. I don't I don't know what the hell he's talking. About. Yeah, and comedians and public intellectuals yeah. <laughs> like just comedians. Yeah. Oh my god. Yeah. Um. Just quick update on Western Standard. Uh, it was founded by Ezra, um, and there is no English-language Western Standard Wikipedia page. There is a French-language one. Weird. And that's it. Um, very weird. Yeah, it's very, like, strange. The English-language one redirects you to Ezra Levant's Wikipedia page. Amazing. I Like, yeah. I believed he, like, I, I thought I knew that he founded it because, like, when just recently it was transferred, they, they created an online version of the Weekly Standard, and it was other people who did it, not Ezra. And during mm -hmm. that interview, because he had them on when they first put it back online, Ezra was talking about how he was the one who like originally started it and gave these people permission to continue it as this online thing, uh, which is now what Rachel Emanuel is uh, working for. But, but yes... Uh, we so public intellectuals here we go james Lindsay, public intellectual not only is he a public intellectual he is a doctor and last time Lindsay was on the show ezra just said he was a doctor but didn't explain what he was a doctor in and then we proceeded to make fun of the fact that Lindsay had a degree in mathematics so here is how ezra <laughs> describes Lindsay's degree our next guest is a public intellectual in every meaning of that word. He is a PhD, though it's in math, one of the hard sciences. The hard science of math. <laughs> All yes, these... Jody. 
all the experiments that one does in the world. Control the variables for your your math experiments. The hard. Sorry. Sorry. Control the what? Oh, the what? (laughs) Well, see, here's the thing. Science uses math, but math is not itself a science. (laughs) What does science mean, Jody? Science means knowledge, and hard means difficult. Okay. That's math. Math is hard uh, and difficult knowledge. True. Okay. You got me. (laughs) I just like, why can't he just say he has a degree in math? Like, I don't like, it's like, it's a hard science. It's like to like sell it as (laughs) it's one dare say it's the best science mathematics. Well, Jody, it's a field dominated by men. Therefore, it's a hard science because that's the dividing line. (laughs) None of this soft lady science. You exactly. Know, I, I, that probably is a lot to do with it, uh, depressingly enough. It is. Uh, but <laughs> I, I just played that because I wanted to, to make fun of that because I thought that was hilarious. But uh, the other thing that they wanted, they introduced the, their uh, conversation with is the fact that uh, James Lindsay was recently on the Joe Rogan show. And so uh, Ezra is very keen to be like, oh, and he, you were recently on the Joe Rogan show. Uh, and you could tell that like Ezra is super jealous and also wants to be on the Joe Rogan show. Does but... Joe Rogan count as a public intellectual? My uh, guess is Ezra would probably say yes. <laughs> I'm going to say even Ezra wouldn't say yes, because then he would have been one of the named famous public intellectuals on the right. Yeah, maybe. I don't Unless know. Unless he considers him a leftist, holy shit. Yeah, I don't know. Oh, I hate this. They then get right to the point, though, to discuss what Lindsay's book's it, book is. So again, it's race Marxism. So this is how uh, they Lindsay describes what his book is about. Here we go. I think race Marxism is plainer language. I mentioned before one of the pitfalls of intellectuals and academics is that they use uh, a 10-letter word where sometimes a Mm five-letter rule will do, and and I'm guilty of that myself. Um, Critical race theory is hard to understand. I think for most people, those words just don't really make sense. They know what each of those words means separately, but you put them together, what's that? Whereas race Marxism, I think people sort of click pretty quickly there that you're transposing the Marxist, you know, the communist uh, philosophy, which was about economics, you're transposing it onto race. Is that, is that the meaning there pretty much? Yeah, that's literally uh, all that it is. It comes down, it's very simple. We hear mysterious words like critical race theory, and then you can trace them backwards. And like you said, they hide the language. But we hear other mysterious words within it, like whiteness. And if you do enough digging and reading, you'll figure out that what they mean by whiteness is what Marx called bourgeois property. Marx said that the essence of communism can be summarized in a single sentence. This is in the Communist Manifesto, the abolition of private or bourgeois property. And so what do we see within critical race theory calls to abolish whiteness, calls to be less white and so on. And what was Marx trying to do? Awaken class consciousness, not just in the proletariat, which would be tantamount to people of color to rebel against the system, but also within the bourgeoisie itself to try to divest of their own advantage. And that's where you see critical whiteness studies trying to awaken awaken what they call a white awareness of their so-called white fragility and every other thing. It's just a complete remake of the Marxist uh, picture, the Marxist program in a completely different non-economic domain. It's now in a kind of identity-based cultural domain. 
Do you follow? You know what? I did. And I, I don't. <laughs> you don't fully disagree, it's a, right? It's Yeah, like it's a, it's a lot closer than I've ever heard James Lindsay be to being right. Yeah. Like that is, it is the closest that he's ever gotten to like adjacent to being correct. Yeah. I, like part of it is like, and, and again, we're, we're going to get into more of the nuances here of why I think he's completely full of shit. But like there, there is some shared lineage with critical race theory and, and sort of like Marxist traditions. Like th- those lineages existed. So that's fine. That's fair. The thing that like you can already see that's kind of like silly is what what sort of like underlying what Lindsay is saying here is there's some kind of like secret project, like as if critical race theory, those words themselves are just so weird and confusing that like no one no one knows what they mean. And they were purposefully put there to hide what's really there, which is race Marxism. And I'm like, I don't know how race Marxism is any less obscure than critical race theory. (laughs) Yeah, like, what they're really saying with that is, hey, our language around, like, talking about critical race theory didn't really catch on with people as well as we wanted it to. So now we need to try something else. That is the same sort of catch-all of like, oh, this could be anything, but now it's new language. Yeah, but it also implies kind of like in what Lindsay is saying, because I think you're right in like the practical sense of what Lindsay is trying to do in order to convince like other conservatives or the populace at large by like connecting it to Marxism specifically to bring back that kind of red baiting energy, right? Like I do mm-hmm. think that's part of his project. But, like, what, what, like, undergirds that is this, like, implication that, like, the critical race scholars somehow, like, conspired in a room to change or to, like, to have their language a specific way. And so the next clip I'm going to play is literally, like, they sort of, like, dig down into that, which is, like, uh, why, why did they do this discreetly, okay? Like, what was, what was their plan? What was... <laughs> I mean, communism, though it doesn't actually work as an economic system, it works as a as an ideology for power. And so why not apply it to other things? As you were showing how it transposes Marxism on a race, I was thinking of feminism, because I think certain forms of feminism could be called gender Marxism. All the uh, oppressors are male. All the, you know, the proletariat, the analogy here for the working class would be, women. And, you know, you have to be a male feminist. You have to renounce your toxic masculinity. So all the, all the language, you just transpose it and, and it just really clicks over because I think it would be hard to appeal to wide swaths of, of, uh, the Western world on communist economics because so many people have such material comfort these days. But if you can get them agitated over gender, or race, or these days, transgenderism, I guess you can motivate them, pit them against each other, and use it to destroy the establishment. That's really the purpose, isn't it? So the, the purpose is to destroy the establishment, which I guess you would, like, the funny thing is, like, I kind of agree again, but, like, the agreement mm-hmm. is, like, 
the establishment should be destroyed, shouldn't it? <laughs> yeah. Like, <laughs> two points, I guess. Like, one, um, like, he was talking about, like, oh, most people have enough material comfort. And then, like, literally the clips that we were playing earlier were like, oh, wow, inflation's so bad. Everybody's poor is just going to have to eat bugs and die and, like, blah, 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 blah. It's like... Maybe it's not as widespread as he thought, huh? Um, the other thing is just, like, on the note of, like, oh, the critical race theorists are, like, sneaky and tried to, like, claim and, like, scholars of whiteness studies and whatever. Um, I have this book here by David Rodiger, uh, who is probably, like, one of the key founders of, like, whiteness studies, Um who's written multiple books about like how whiteness is historically subjective and like how certain ethnic groups were like brought into whiteness at the expense of people of color and particularly black people in the United States. Uh, and this book is called class race and Marxism. They're not subtle about it. Like, no, they were, they were hiding that they wanted to destroy the establishment. They had to hide it from us, you know? (laughs) true yeah because they knew they knew they couldn't convince the masses to do it so they had to subtly get the like the the weird thing is like there there is a weird thing here where because this is a type of argument that is often uh or or the weird part about it to me is that it, it is a kind of argument that's often deployed by some on the left which is that the elites are making us focused on race and gender issues so that the working class can't come together to fight for a better system like what what Ezra was saying here was kind of like in that vein, which is something I have heard people on the left argue. Now I, I don't necessarily agree with that, but it's weird because Ezra then inverts this by saying that getting us focused on things like race and gender is specifically for us to destroy the establishment, which for him seems to be like neoliberal capitalism, which isn't like the leftists are use this argument to say like uh, we should destroy the establishment but to like create like a a, a marxist class thing right <laughs> or like uh, try to like uh in- increase the uh or or get rid of the bourgeois class right that's usually mm-hmm. how this argument is employed but ezra's being like no like they're getting us focused on race and gender so that we will destroy the system like <laughs> yes like yeah they are yeah the other thing is, like, okay, Ezra Levant of Rebel News, like... No, we gotta keep the you know, establishment. He, Being a rebel yeah. is keeping the establishment. Re- rebellion is keeping the establishment that he also hates. Yeah, all the elites that he said the day prior. All those yeah. elites are the establishment. Like, but he... But see, this is where it's, like, their conspiracy theories, like... Also, because he thinks that like the people like Bezos and Bill Gates are the ones promoting the like Marxist theory, and are therefore part of the problem destroying society. Like he, like that's part of their argument. Yeah, it's. <laughs> I just yeah, it's so insane. Like it's just so disconnected and circular. But like, I don't know. Like. <laughs> It, yeah, no, it's listening to this was like a mind fuck. Uh but <laughs> but the next part of this, so yes, they they uh the next part is to go, okay, they're doing this, and now Lindsay wants to highlight like a historical note, which is that it's not just critical race theory. 
but like Marxists hiding their true intentions have been like a historical thing that actually goes all the way back to Marx himself. I mean, even the term critical race theory, just to try to drag back for one second, critical race theory is, according to Kimberly Crenshaw, who wrote it, this is an example of how they hide what they're doing in different words, is a critical theory of race. She says we were critical theorists who were interested in racial justice and racial justice advocates who were doing critical theory. So the name was natural. That's how she came up with the name critical race theory. But the name critical theory is actually a packaging up of something that other scholars have referred to as critical Marxism or Western Marxism. So you call it critical theory as the thing that drives it and people don't detect that it's Marxist. And that arose out of a thing that's called the Institute for Social Research uh, from Goethe University in Frankfurt, Germany, the so-called Frankfurt School. But the original name of that was the Institute for Marxism, but its funders, Felix Vail in particular, said, well, that would be a little too on the nose, so let's not call it the Institute for Marxism. Let's call it something else and hide the ball. And this actually goes all the way back to Karl Marx. You know, you talk about this as an ideology. It's actually more of a religion. And the original title of the Communist Manifesto, most people don't know this, and Engels is the one, Friedrich Engels is the one who said, don't do that, Karl, uh, was the Confession of Communist Faith by Karl Marx. Hmm. And so uh, this hiding the nature of what they're actually creating um, is the essence of how they are able to to get it to be insinuated into institutions and into society and to agitate a society to its own downfall and for their own uh, ability to seize power. So a lot was said there. Most most of which I don't think was actually true. But I, I will say, like even on the just on the face of it, when you say that somehow they changed it from the confession or confessions of communist faith. And they changed it from that to the Communist Manifesto. How, how does that hide or obscure what their true intentions are by that title change? Fucking <laughs> Friedrich Engels fucking up Marxism yet again. I, no, but this, I, I'll get into it in a second, but I actually don't think what he's saying is accurate. I'm just saying, like, confessions of communist faith. Like, I guess he's saying he's... Lindsay might be arguing here that they're trying to obscure the fact that Marxism is actually a religion. But I even find that to be a weird argument, and we'll we'll get to some of that later in uh, the next day as well. But like, there's a sense in which like, I mean, Lindsay is working for a religious organization while he's writing this book. Like, and, and like, the the far right really likes religion. Like, most of them are religious, but <laughs> but they always to want of- to say our enemies are like trying to be religious. You know, like, then aren't well, yeah, you saying religion trying is to bad? subvert Christianity? I mean, yeah, that's going to be more explicit the next day, so. I'm trying to figure out, like, a hand gesture that would be, like, the sign of the cross, but, like, hammer and sickle, or, like, some sort of communist symbolism. So I can't speak to the... Sign of the star. (laughs) I get it. You're going to be a a cheerleader for Marxism and learn to do the hand sign for the, the hammer and sickle. Uh... So I can't speak to the claim about the Frankfurt School, about Felix, uh, Felix, who is the initial person who's starting it, uh, arguing that we can't call it the Institute for Marxism and instead called it like uh, Institute for Research uh, into Society or what. I can't remember the exact name, but either way, like I tried looking for any information on that, couldn't find a single thing. So unless it's in some sort of like obscure report somewhere that that was the case, 
and that really was Felix's intention to change the name, then like that's sure. <laughs> Whatever. I honestly do not think that was Felix's intention that like we got to hide, we have to hide the Marxism to make sure that it all uh, it all goes away and nobody knows our true intentions at the 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 Jewish run Frankfurt school where we're hiding our intentions, which I, I feel is at the, at the bottom of what uh, James Lindsay is trying to get at here. I have a, a book open here on the history of the Frankfurt school. I'm going to just look through the Felix Vale re- index real quick. While you look at that, I'll, I'll address the next point, which I think is even more damning to what Lindsay's theory here, which is this this notion that uh, the communist confessions of faith uh, was was something that like Engels told Marx not to name the communist manifesto. In reality, the communist confessions of faith was a document that was actually produced by Engels. So Engels wrote the communist uh, or the <laughs> communist confession of faith. That was actually a document written by Engels, contrary to what Lindsay is saying. And it also preceded the manifesto. So it was written before the communist manifesto came out. The reason why it was called the communist confessions of faith is that it was it was written in the form of a catechism. So it was like a doctrine of faith, and it was written in the form of a question and answer, which is how like catechisms were written, which were like these documents uh, promoting the, the Christian faith, right? And once he was done doing that, they eventually, he wrote another work that was in a similar vein, another question and answer thing that they called the Principles of Communism. Then the catechism format was later rejected for a prose narrative which is when Marx came into the fold here. And eventually what was written was the Communist Manifesto. But Marx used the two earlier documents, right? So Marx used both the Communist Confession of Faith and the Principles of Communism to help write the Communist Manifesto. But that doesn't mean that they were going to use the earlier title as the name of the Communist Manifesto. It just so happened that that document was one of the ones that Marx used to write the Communist Manifesto. So, like, nothing Lindsay is saying here is fucking true. <laughs> Unless you have some other understanding of that I- historical uh, footnote. But, like, from my, my cursory reading of it, that's, that's the sense that I got. So it's like, it's, I see no indication that the original title of the Communist Manifesto was the Communist Confessions of Faith. Jody, don't you know that drafts and um, different <laughs> essays are the same as the Communist Manifesto? Well, Lindsay literally said that Engels had to go to Marx and be like, no, Marx, don't do it, Marx. <laughs> don't, write, <laughs> don't write the title, Marx. Uh, so yes, uh, long story short, Lindsay is full of shit. Um, yeah, and on the note of the social uh, institute for social research name, I can't find anything saying that Felix Weil was just like, oh yeah, we shouldn't do that. Um, he talked about, I don't remember what the English translation of it was, and my German isn't good enough to know exactly what it means. Um, but 
uh, it had its roots. The Institute for Social Research had its roots in an event that took place in the Thuringian town of Ilmenau a year before its foundation. In the summer of 1923, a group of Marxist intellectuals had gathered for the Erst Marxistische Arbeitwoch, a week-long summer symposium organized by Felix Weil to address the practical problems of implementing socialism. So it doesn't sound like he would have a reason to be against the name when he was organizing things based on Marx, like phrased around Marxism a year prior. Not to mention, every, every, almost all the people at the Frankfurt School were self-identified Marxists that proudly proclaimed they were Marxists. Like, why? <laughs> it's like, we're a bunch of Marxists, but we need to change the name of our institute to hide that fact, even though we openly announce it to everyone that we are, yeah. in fact, Marxists. Um, and when you read our works, you could clearly read <laughs> that we are, in fact, Marxists. Okay. The education ministry had suggested calling it the Felix Weil Institute of Social Research, but Weil modestly demurred. The original idea of calling it the Institute for Marxismus, the Institute for Marxism, was deemed too provocative. So that's probably the education ministry's decision considering that like there had just been multiple failed marxist revolutions in germany like literally the year prior and like the country was in an ongoing state of like semi-civil war so amazingly a government that was fighting marxists didn't want to name an institute at a major university after marxism (laughs) and it was forming before world war ii wasn't it yeah, so, so this was 1924. Right, so you're also dealing with the, the fact of, like, you know, of these growing far-right movements within Germany that were connecting Jewishness to Bolshevism, and, like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, there's there's yeah. probably other reasons they don't want to identify uh, explicitly in the title of their organization as Marxists, you know? Yeah, Um, and just, like, for people listening, uh, this was from Grand Hotel Abyss, The Lives of the Frankfurt School by Stuart Jeffries. Um, source in my information. What I will say, I mean, not to give James Lindsay any credit here, but like that is at least closer to what Lindsay said in this clip. Yeah. Uh, but compare that to like the Marx part, definitely not. <laughs> so Lindsay and Ezra then discuss reviews of the book. Uh, Lindsay's book, Race Marxism, from left-wing magazines, and they focus on a review that is in Jacobin Magazine. And the review in Jacobin Magazine said some of the things that we've already said on our own show right now, which is that uh, James Lindsay books is a uh, is a long-winded argument to just say that CRT is Marxism, but says nothing about why Marxism is bad. Uh, <laughs> uh, and yeah, yeah that's exactly... <laughs> I think that is an accurate review. And Lindsay does say that his next book is going to be directly arguing why Marxism is bad, which I'm like, why wouldn't that just be your first book? I mean, of course, like we've already hit on it, but like the conspiracy theory is to get people angry about like the evil Marxists who are hidden and sneaky and trying to like push, push their ideology onto us. Right. Where it's like, that if if is anything like poisoning the well where you could just try to state charitably why you think marxism is bad 
and go about it like a serious intellectual. But instead, you have to first write a book saying that it's a giant conspiracy to hide the fact that all these all these systems are just secretly Marxist and they're trying to get you. It's almost like he's a dishonest actor. <laughs> Jody, how dare you make such an accusation? Oh my god. Ezra even says that this review is actually good because the review itself does not take issue with the underlying premise, which is that CRT is Marxism. So Ezra's like, look, look, they even admit it. <laughs> they admit yeah. it. The thing that <laughs> all of us have been admitting this whole time. Yeah, we finally admit it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> where it's like the problem is not the thesis that this is related to marxism although again Lindsay often overstates what the relation is but the problem is when Lindsay says things like they're hiding the marxism to destroy society which is their secret aim and as we've already been over frankly they're doing a pretty poor job at it uh hiding it if a moron like Lindsay can figure it all out just by reading their books <laughs> mm. <laughs> They're hiding it by making reference to it in all of their writings. Yeah. So they then start to talk about how kids these days don't really know why Marxism is bad. Uh, and apparently the reason why they don't know that Marxism is bad is because they're not told about it, about how bad it is in our mainstream culture. I think one of the reasons why people don't know why Marxism bad is bad is because I, I don't think we have a historical... Literacy. I think the generation that fought Nazi totalitarianism is is gone. They've died, and a lot of the generation that fought the Cold War or that held the line during the Cold War, um, you know, I mean, the Berlin Wall fell. What I mean, more than thirty years ago. A lot of that generation is gone or just, oh, that's old stuff, Grandpa. I'm not bored. That's boring. Like, we're just too far removed. Um, you know, we've done streeters, as we call them. We just go downtown Toronto, ask the most basic questions, like who fought? Yeah, you ask who fought in the Second World War. People don't know basic historical elements. So, so if they don't know what Marxism really was in real life, the only thing they've ever heard about it was from their college professors, if, you know, Bernie Sanders is what they think Marxism is, a friendly grandpa who wants to give them free everything, it's not surprising that they like Marxism. Marxism is what their cool professor taught them, what the hot girl in college was talking about, and what that friendly grandpa Bernie Sanders was talking about. What's not to like about Marxism? I like all those three things because I'm a 20-year-old kid. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if the hot girls are into Marxism, I'm going to be into Marxism. Like, <laughs> the question the is, the cool how grandpa did... who wants to give me free shit. Like, yeah. How did the hot That's girls Marx. get into Marxism, though? <laughs> right? Like, of course, he's saying that like the twenty-year-old kids get into Marxism because the hot girls were already into Marxism. But I want to know what is the hot girl to Marxism pipeline? That is. <laughs> well, it's the girl to Marxism to hot girl pipeline. True. <laughs> getting the marxism is what makes you then a hot girl that or the confused gender weird boy to marxism to hot girl pipeline that as well <laughs> all valid uh yeah i mean there's there's so much silliness in here like 
I mean, it, again, like they, you notice that like they never address like what actually is wrong with Marxism. It's just like, oh, you must be a kid to be in Marxism because like all it takes is some old man being like, you'll get free stuff. And then all of a sudden you're a Marxist where it's like, there's no substance to like, well, what is, what actually is Marxism? What, how, <laughs> what do Marxists actually think or believe? It's just like, you're a naive child. You don't know what's really up. And you just you you don't consume any movies or culture that tells you that Marxism is bad, so you just accept it. Uh, that it's it's actually good. Uh. <laughs> yeah, like uh, yeah. The only like counter is Cold War Berlin Wall. Like that's it. There's th- the other thing is there's tons of of anti-Marxist, like, cult, like, there's a scene in Stranger Things that, like, promotes the idea of capitalism and talks about how Marxism, or, like, communist, Soviet communism is bad. Like, the the Red Scare shit permeates our culture. Like, I have no fucking clue what he's talking about. Okay, let's just, like, do a quick little list of, like, just off the top of your head, no deep thought titles that have like anti-communist messages throughout um red chernobyl red dawn um black widow um stranger things um hunt for red october was was that an anti-communist film probably i don't know (laughs) um i'm older this (laughs) yeah but like you know the bad guys in movies are always the the russians (laughs) yeah but uh, and also, like, you know, you look at, like, most of the Marvel movies, for example, where it's like, oh, Killmonger and Black Panther, he's like, oh, wow, the U.S. did imperialism and did, like, racism and impover- impoverished purposefully and, you know, enslaved black communities in the United States forever and ever and, you know, how they got to the United States, etc. And his solution is like, oh, but we're going to do bad things now, too. Or, like... I don't know. The one Spider-Man movie where the guy is like, oh, wow, I was a worker and I was um, oppressed and now I must kill children. Like, it's always like, you know, that ideology is always in the back of the mind where it's like, yeah, they're coming from like genuine places, but then they go too far and they start eating babies or whatever. Mm -hmm. Like, that's that's super villains always. But the other part of it is like, they don't have to, they don't have to do the direct negative uh i'm going to use the word propaganda but like it doesn't even have to be intentional it's just we're embedded the people who make these movies are embedded in the culture right but like Mm -hmm. it doesn't have to be direct like soviet communism bad but tons of movies promote the idea that neoliberal capitalism is great like that like and and by you know and by uh comparison like who what well then what is bad right but the idea is like oh you could pull yourself up by your bootstraps and you and you can make it in the end if you just try hard enough and like those who make it like deserve it and earn it and like being wealthy is cool look at look at all these cool celebrity wealthy people like that pervades the culture so for like him to like claim that like somehow like children are not getting the message that marxism is bad they're getting the other message though which is saying that capitalism is fantastic and great which is which is another way of saying that Marxism is bad, you know? Yeah. So then, <laughs> let's 
Lindsay then goes on a long rant about how Marxism is embedded in the corporate culture in America. Uh, And this exists through both like uh, white fragility seminars, but also like climate change stuff. And Ezra talks about how everyone knows Hitler is bad because of movies, but there are no movies about how uh, Stalin is bad. (laughs) I mean, I, sure, whatever, whatever. But then Lindsay argues that our education system, so it's, it's it's not just that the movies, the culture, the finance, all that shit, is taken over by Marxists, but our education system is also taken over by Marxists in what uh, Lindsay describes as redwashing. It's a fundamental irony. You know, we hear the critical race theorists tell us we have whitewashed education, that white supremacy is geared education so that it makes white people look good and glorifies white people and elevates white people and their role in history, et cetera. But the fact of the matter is we have redwashed education. We have we, we have had Marxists embedded in our education system since in the in the United States at least, since its uh public education inception with John Dewey, who modeled the uh public education system, his thoughts on it, and he was extremely influential in that on what he witnessed when he visited the USSR in the early 1920s and thought it was the ideal model. And then we've incorporated more and more Marxist theory into education, particularly through Paulo Freire uh, in the um, 1970s and 80s or 80s in particular. And so now our model of education is almost wholly that. Our education system is just Marxist. Uh, because John Dewey went to the USSR in the 1920s, and uh, you know, there she wrote. That's uh, that's it. True, American education that doesn't teach about slavery <laughs> is Marxist. And when they try to teach CRT, people poop their pants. So, and write books called Race Marxism. <laughs> I uh, so here's the thing. I'm not fully sure what Lindsay is referring to with John Dewey in terms of Dewey saying that what happened in the USSR was like the ideal form of education. I found something that I think is related. But anyways, one thing to note about Dewey. So he was vaguely on the left. So Dewey promoted uh, the labor movement in the United States. He was a self-described democratic socialist. But he was very openly critical of both the Soviet Union and some of the writings of Karl Marx. Dewey was especially anti-Stalin, which is fine. I don't particularly like Stalin myself. But he received particular ire from Americans who were pro-Soviet after forming what was called the Dewey Commission in Mexico, which was set up to clear Leon Trotsky of the charges made by Stalin. So, like, (laughs) Dewey actively, like, was involved in that project. Uh... As for the claims about Soviet education, the only thing I could find before recording was an article Dewey wrote for the New Republic back in like 1928 about his travels to the Soviet Union between 1922 and 1925, which I remind everyone is the last years of Lenin. So clearly like this predates uh, Dewey's future criticisms of the Soviet Union uh, involving Stalin. But at one point, Dewey writes in this article about how he was inspired by the resilient uh, Russian children who bounced back after the war. 
and he suggests that it has to do with the wise people who took advantage of the situation to make these children's lives better. However, he immediately turns from that to say uh, he made no systematic inquiry into it, so he didn't do any research to figure out like how things came to be. He didn't study the uh, USSR's education system, none of that. And he even admits that these were just his impressions. <laughs> okay. But he praised it, Jody. Now, here's the other thing. I cannot find any writings where Dewey refers to the Soviet education system as an ideal. But also, it wouldn't make sense. Dewey's most famous works on education were written between 1897 and 1915, which is almost a decade before he went to Russia. So, <laughs> so all the work that he did to change the America's education system was done prior to this fucking trip. <laughs> and prior to the Soviet Union existing. Like, look at how fucking superficial this book is. It's like, you'll find one line somewhere, and then go, therefore, it's all a secret conspiracy, and they're trying to hide the fact that everything's Marxist. Just because Dewey, this one dude way back in the day who was a philosopher of education, thought one thing, that therefore the entire thing is, like, fucking tainted with, like, Marxness. Like, the Marxness is just sprinkled all over it. Fucking ridiculous. Everything is Marxism. I wish. Yeah. <laughs> it will be. They then talk about how public schools are communist training grounds and how parents aren't allowed to see what teachers are doing. I disagree with that completely. I have access to what my children are learning in school right now. Pretty easy to inquire and figure out what's going on. <laughs> but Jody, that would take effort to learn about the lives of your children. And that's Marxism. True. Uh, I mean, like, yeah, there, I think, what did he say at one point? I didn't uh, clip this, but uh, I think he at one point said that uh, the, the kids are being churned out of these schools to become, like, communist cannon fodder. <laughs> We're sending the children to the front line and... Communist um, revolution. But you could tell, like, with language like this, like, Lindsay is contributing. I mean, obviously he's contributing to it, but, like, he's partly responsible for these, like, fucking right-wing lunatics that are showing up to town halls yelling at their school boards because he's claiming that their, their kids are being turned into, like, communist cannon fodder. It's wild. So they then get back to the, the financial sector uh, and they talk about how they're all communists, just like George Soros. They talk about how these financial groups are now regulating fossil fuel companies, which, of course, anything to stop climate change is communism. And Ezra then brings up his own book, which is Ethical Oil. Now, I'm going to play a clip that's ridiculous. But before I play the clip, I just want to highlight how silly it is that Ezra's main argument uh, in the clip I'm going to play is that Canadian and American oil production is more ethical in terms of things like higher wages, safety, etc. But like, isn't the reason why our, our oil is more ethical than, uh, you know, the evil, the evil oil from Middle Eastern and communist countries is because like we have regulations that improve like job safety and increase our wages. Like that seems to be his argument, yet increases in job security, safety and wages and all those things. 
that's communism. So <laughs> that's evil regulation. So it's like our oil is only ethical because it's communist. If you listen to what Ezra is saying. <laughs> it's so stupid. We need to nuke the oil sands so that the oil floats to the surface. I, I do I do also want to say, just like not not to give him too much credit here, because like I don't think that our oil is like all that more ethical, like compared to what's going on in Louisiana, which is uh, a lot of a large swath of that is called Cancer Alley because they're just destroying the environment down there and uh, with all the gas refineries and stuff like that. It's not uh, it's not wonderful. And I don't think the people there are like, thank God we're not getting Middle Eastern uh, oil. So it's great that I have cancer now. Like, I'm pretty yeah. sure. <laughs> I mean, and the environmental devastation of the oil sands and, you know, yeah. man camps and missing and murdered indigenous women and girls. And, you know, just like unending. I mean, the workplace safety is also not that good here no. like it's one of the most dangerous jobs in the country like it's still uh, yeah like it's just it all sucks and that's not even but, getting into like oh yeah the reason why like wages and safety and regulations are so low is because we make sure that wages in the third world are depressed and that regulations don't exist because if they try to put in regulations, then we'll restructure their debt obligations, like, et cetera, et cetera. Yep. Yeah. No, it's, I mean, like, the whole thing is just, uh, it just really is stupid. But it, it's, like, it's ironic because, like, if what he is saying is true, like, I guess what, what he would say is that somehow because we're a free market society that like what the companies just treat their workers better out of the kindness of their heart like it's a cultural thing like i i'm guessing that's where he has to go because otherwise you're going to be arguing for all the regulations which just like the climate change regulations regulation equals big government equals communism equals bad right so it's it's just weird his the whole narrative for this ethical oil shit is just fucking weird to me and self-contradictory but you know ezra self-contradictory that's the <laughs> kind of the name of the game which is relevant to the the next uh, clip i'm gonna play so the main reason ezra is bringing up his book is because he's making a hypocrisy gotcha that these finance people are pretending to be green for clout while investing in other ethically problematic companies and industries the one example Ezra brings up, though, is not great in terms of other causes that Ezra supports. And otherwise, this hypocrisy gotcha is itself a hypocrisy gotcha, but for Ezra. <laughs> in my book, Ethical Oil, the case for Canada's oil sense, I, I, you, know, you take ethical and oil, you put those two words together, a lot of people are sort of startled, but... You make the case, look, Canadian oil, American oil is made more ethically than oil in OPEC dictatorships or Russia. It's a pretty easy argument, actually, whether it's environmental, peace, um, how you pay the workers, civil rights, whatever. Um, when I was doing that book, I, I looked at investment firms, investment funds that said we will never invest in the oil sands. They were divesting from the oil sands or even indeed from all fossil fuels. And when I looked, I just went online and I, I looked at what these funds held. 
And these so-called ethical funds, almost all of them had big investments in, in China, and not just general investments. I remember there was one that invested in that railway into Tibet, which has been universally regarded as a not only the building of that railway as a human rights violation, but the purpose was to import millions of ethnically Han Chinese people to dilute and really destroy um, Tibet in the same way that the Soviet Union would Russify the ethnic republics. I mean, you can have your opinions on those things one way or the other, but the fact is these were ethical funds saying we will never invest in Canadian oil, but we're going to invest in the Chinese Communist Party railway. I like how he like tried to like sidestep it at the end and be like, well, you can have your opinions one way or the other. But his whole argument rests on it being ethically problematic to invest in this railroad, right? Yeah. But like also the, the argument literally is like pro-BDS. <laughs> we, need, we need to boycott, divest, and sanction the Chinese government for sending their ethnic Chinese people into Tibet to claim their territory. <laughs> like, this is exactly what's happening in Israel! <laughs> I'm... I'm so confused about the... about that, like... And you can think about that one way or the other. Like, what section <laughs> of his audience is that meant to, like, mollify? Like, who is supposed to be like, oh, yeah, thank goodness... He said, I'm allowed to be in support of this if I want. Who is it that's like, yeah? I I honestly feel like, like, like me just listening to it. I'm like, what you're describing is what is happening in Israel. And I wonder if he, like, self-consciously became aware of that in the middle of saying what he was saying. That's, that is what I'm thinking. Or, or, or what I'm... you're saying is true and he's trying to appeal to someone. But like, I don't know. Like, it's just, that was such a clear description of people settling in the West Bank, you know? I feel like that's, it's closer to like the pro-Putin faction. Yeah, maybe that too. Then like, oh, because like I think that connecting that to Israel stuff, is yeah. such a disconnect to his mind that like, I don't think he's capable of even considering that as a factor. Because he did bring up the the uh, Russian expansion and yeah. like doing this, so yeah, yeah, interesting. Yeah, no, that's that's a that's a good uh, good guess. Just very weird. We're, like it's it's amazing how he can realize these things in certain contexts and then just completely ignore them in others. Like he could clearly see this as a bad when it comes to his hated enemy, the Chinese. Yet, of course, when people he likes are doing the exact same fucking thing, he just ignores it or it isn't happening. Mm-hmm. Or quote unquote, it isn't happening because he wants to believe that it isn't happening. Ezra and Lindsay then get into talking about how censorship is a problem, and Ezra says uh, that the right now uh, is being censored because they're, well, as I put it, they're being bigoted towards trans people, uh, and it can get you booted off social media if you criticize trans people or. Uh, you're transphobic. And Lindsay responds with what he characterizes as the deeper reason why the left engages in censorship. And ironically enough, like a lot of the clips that we've played today, I actually agree with with the underlying message here in a weird way. So here we go. And the deeper reason is actually because these the people who run this cartel believe, just like Marx, 
that essentially the limits of what you can think or imagine are what dictate society and what dictates society is what dictates who you are or who people can be and what the range of mankind and, and society and its goals can be you shape society by 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 affecting the range of somebody's subjective experience. And so if we read, for example, the Marxist Herbert Marcuse uh, from the 1960s, 1965, he writes Repressive Tolerance. He says right-wingers, reactionaries, have to be prevented not just from acting on their reactionary interests, and reactionary for him means everybody who's not a socialist or a communist. They have to not just be prevented from acting on their ideas. They have to be prevented from having the idea ever enter their mind. He actually says that explicitly. He says, of course, this would be censorship and even pre, uh, excuse me, pre-censorship, but it's necessary to deal with the fact of the already, uh, you know, damaging and proto-fascistic society that we automatically live in. He says it's only justifiable in a state of clear and present danger, but that's the permanent state of the existing society because it's not going communist fast enough. I don't. I don't think that that it's about communism not going fast enough, but it's more about like fascism is just always going to be a part of the human condition and we must be vigilant against it forever. Right? Like, I I think that is, I mean, but the funny thing is like, notice this is very similar to arguments I've made on this show several fucking times. Like, yeah, we we don't want right-wing ideas to spread. And so maybe we should get them off of social media so they don't get to convert people to their batshit dangerous ideas. Also, what historical experience might Herbert Marcuse of German descent have gone through? You know, perhaps perhaps like a major takeover of a government by reactionary forces perhaps a little thing called a world war that might have influenced that sort of thinking, you know? I wonder. It's it's a real mystery that I, I just can't quite get my head around. But, you know, hmm. Yeah, I mean, like, yes. <laughs> it is the missing of the historical context of, like, yeah, maybe there was a real threat. Like, fascism was a real threat, and they were realizing that, like, maybe we need to deal with this very real threat that we lived through and experienced. Uh, yeah. Uh, and But the thing is there, it's like, again, it's this notion that somehow we're hiding something. Like, there's a deeper reason for why we're doing this, like, online censorship. But the deeper reason is expressed, like, again, it's something I've expressed constantly on our show. It's something that when the people defend uh, censoring... Like when the government is putting forward the current motion, uh, or at least I don't know how what the process is at right now, but the one bill that was supposed to curb online hate speech, like all these were done with the professed notion of making it harder for far-right extremists to reach people and recruit them. That has always been explicitly why we're doing this. It doesn't need to be a deeper reason. We know what the reason is. That's the fucking reason. <laughs> and yes, like, I, I realize you're aware of it. And now, like, Lindsay's is, Lindsay is going to say, well, like, we're not bad because I actually do think that trans people are not good. And I actually do think that, like, racists are cool people. And I actually, like, so it's like, okay, you're just defending the fact that you're a fascist. Then fucking own it. <laughs> like, stop playing these word games and, like, hiding the ball. Just admit you're a fascist. And that's why you're worried about being censored.
Just fucking own it. Like, there's such, there's such, they're babies. They're just a bunch of babies. Yep. Boo hoo hoo, I'm being censored. Well, then stop being a dick. <laughs> stop being a fucking dick. Like and like and it's amazing. Like I just I can't get over this because like it's it's like a loop to me because they're going, they over there are the ones who are lying and trying to hide it from us that they have this secret plan. Meanwhile, we're being open, telling them what exactly we want to do, and they're the ones hiding their own ball by like not being open about the things that they believe, and then they're projecting it on us. <laughs> it's so fucking annoying. Yeah. Delete social media. Yes. True. And then ban them from all media, not just social. <laughs> all media is social media, Jody. Oh, true. Well, yeah, sure. True. I'm just saying, let's go like, I mean, social media came up with, you know, Facebook, Twitter, all that shit. I'm saying let's let's ban all television, too. Let's get yeah. radio. No, let's I, get rid of it all. <laughs> that's always that's always been been the, the goal and the point. Um, James Lindsay and Ezra can speak through tin cans on a string. Um, but only if they supply the cans themselves. And we will deprive them of that ability. <laughs> As true Marxists. <laughs> oh, so we're we're at the end of the uh James Lindsay experience here. And uh they finish with this this last little point on censorship. So another reason they give uh for this kind of censorship, like kicking people off of uh the internet for being transphobic, is that it's actually designed to groom people so they then talk about how there's all these different words for indigenous people like native or aboriginal and there's all these different like pronouns and there's like cisgender and like all these words and they suggest this is a kind of language game and it's a tool to keep people in line just like stalin was doing in the soviet union let me tell you uh, something that's going to sound positively insane. And so do with what you want. But the logical conclusion of that behavior, the in fact, this is a kind of symbolic beginning to the famous situation where, say, when Stalin would come up to speak, everyone would clap and famously for 10, 12 15, 20 minutes, everybody's standing and clapping, giving an ovation because they know whoever stops clapping first is going to get shot. That's what's being replicated here in microcosm with the compelling of putting people's pronouns. Yep. That's natural selection. Every time we tell someone to use proper pronouns, it's just like Stalin shooting people for stopping clapping. Yep. No, if they mess them up, that's the wall. You know, there's no corrections. There's no, you know... I... Social manners of like, hey, actually, this. <laughs> if I was ever in Lindsay's presence, like, I would just, I, if he said that it, to me, to my face, I would just say to him, I'm like, do you know what the difference between something petty, like you didn't clap as long as I want you to, so I'm going to kill you? And the difference between that and, say, someone going, 
I identify this way. Please treat me with a bit of respect. Do you like do you understand the differences between these things or like they're just the same because reasons? <laughs> no, they're they are literally the same, Jody. Like like everything that he says is devoid of the morality. Like I think if if Stalin was up there being like if you're a Nazi, I'm going to shoot you. A lot of people aren't going to complain because fuck Nazis and they deserve to be shot, right? <laughs> like if if you're if you're saying something moral, then sure. I mean, the thing that's like weird about this Stalin example, whether it's true or not, is like th- what Stalin would be doing in this case is absolutely absurd and ridiculous and immoral what he's doing. But in the case of like censoring someone off of Twitter for harassing people, you can make a moral argument for that. But like that is never it never enters this discussion. It's all just fucking this thing is like this thing, even though they're completely different. I want a Stalinist Squid Game series, um, where like Stalin games. Every yeah, every game is introduced by Stalin, and he just like leans into the mic and is like, "Clap or die." Yeah, and that's it. <laughs> like, no, it's like. Did you ever see those movies Saw? So no, like the Saw, I, I know what the premise. Yeah, yeah. So the Saw guy is like, "Do you want to play a game?" But it's like it, it turns around and it's Stalin, and he's like, "Do you want to clap or die?" Exactly. I would just choose clapping at that point. <laughs> James Lindsay thinks that the Death of Stalin movie was a documentary. You, you like know, So back when they were talking about like movies and culture, they actually brought it that up as a good example of like actually like criticizing the communist regime uh, movies. That like out of all mainstream culture, that's the only movie that accurately portrays like why Marxism is bad. Sure. You know what? Yeah, it's a good movie. I liked it. It was no, funny. It's, yeah, but it's it's a comedy. And like, yeah, it's just it's amazing. Yeah, it's a comedy based off of a graphic novel. No, it's like uh, it's reality. Yeah, they went back in time and just filmed. <laughs> yeah, God. It's a found footage movie. All right, the, the very, very, very last thing before we move off James Lindsay is they end the interview with gushing over how much they love Joe Rogan. And like, oh my God, you got to go on his show. Oh my God, Joe Rogan, I love him. He's so, he's so lovely. So, uh, so yeah, that's, they, they, they end where they began. And uh, what a wild ride. Jesus Christ, that took a lot of time. But <laughs> we still got a bit more to go through because this was only Tuesday. Although it, the, the, the next few days go by pretty fast. It's not as intensive. Uh, all right, so we get to uh, March 23rd, the Wednesday. And the opening monologue section is on a poll which suggests that being anti-vax makes you more likely to support Russian, aggren- Russian aggression against Ukraine. And Ezra is mad at the polling company, suggesting that the two issues don't connect and that including the question is a non sequitur introduced into the polling by a liberal a liberal pollster company. <laughs> he then argues that actually, if you think about it, these result these results are fine because it shows that anti-vax people are critical thinkers 
and don't just swallow what the media party tells them. So if the results are fine, then what's the problem with the question? Like, It's a non sequitur, Vienna. Why would anyone want to know why anti-vax people are more likely to support Russian aggression? Why would anyone want to know that? What could that tell us about the world, Vienna? <laughs> that they're critical thinkers. That they're critical theorists. <laughs> I mean, the funny thing is, is his, like, his, like, inevitable, like, they're fine because they're critical thinkers shtick is exactly why the pollsters are, like, looking at this question, which is, like, people's, like, uh, media spheres that they exist in and information spheres such that they would both agree that, one, vaccines are bad, and, two, that, like, Russia should be aggressive against Ukraine, right? Like, why do those things relate to each other? It is a really interesting question to ask, but, like, Ezra doesn't like it because... I think he's struggling with the fact that, like, he does not side with his anti-vax brethren on this issue. <laughs> and yet he still throws them a bone, much like you were speculating earlier with the, uh, the well, like, I'm not going to, if you're going to have an opinion on this issue, I'm just not, I'm not going to judge you. Yeah, like, he's trying to, he's trying to keep things calm and steady. He doesn't want the mailbag segment to be yeah. totally against him. <laughs> Right, because last week you got a few critical critical messages. So. Mm -hmm. The interview segment is with the Babylon Bee, is specifically the editor, Joel Berry, uh, who is on to talk about how the Babylon Bee's Twitter account was taken down due to a transphobia. I was going to say a transphobic joke. like I mean, because the Babylon Bee is uh, supposed to be like a pro-Christian evangelical alternative to the onion. So they think they're doing jokes, but really they're just doing a bigotry, and they got uh, banned for it. <laughs> uh, but they want a character, like, they try to, like, they're getting into, like, why, why this happened? Why are we kicked off Twitter, right? Uh, and their explanation is they got kicked off Twitter because trans ideology is actually, when you think about it, a religious cult. What we're dealing with here is is a cult ideology. We're we're, we're dealing with uh, religious people who have constructed a worldview that doesn't uh, hold up under scrutiny uh, scrutiny, whether that be you know uh, moral scrutiny, uh, scientific scrutiny, um, or uh, logical questioning. It doesn't hold up under any of those things. So the only way that that worldview is going to survive is through force. And so, for, you know, for a lot of reasons we could talk about all day. This ideology has kind of crept into the institutions, the media, universities, corporations, and um, and there's a lot of fear. There's a lot of fear at the top, and uh, they they bow to these these interests and this this ideology. And and it's after a while we knew it was going to come uh, and burn us at the B, and eventually it did. Burn us at the B. <laughs> Mad because your theology is losing to a superior one, aren't you? Dun dun dun. Yeah, I, <laughs> it's so, this line of attack is just so silly. It's like, no, like, we, we, we realize, those of us on the side of kicking you off Twitter, realize that we're not going to convince you in a battle of ideas, because just like you pointed out, religious people are locked into their ideology. There's no way that we could convince you that you're wrong. You've, you've bought it. You're a Christian who believes that trans people defy some sort of, like, hierarchical model of, like, there being a binary gender distribution, et cetera, et cetera, right? So, like, yes, okay, 
you're not going to buy any arguments that we have to give to you, even though I do think scientifically the facts are on our side. All these other arguments that we could make, I think, are on our side. But we can't convince you. So we're going to prevent you from trying to convince other people by kicking you off of social media. And, from, and we're also going to prevent you from harming other people by harassing them by being off of social media. So it's like, it's not, it's, it's not done for the religious reasons that you would want to kick us off of things, like you trying to ban CRT in schools or trying to ban like transgender ideology from schools, which they're actively doing, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just it's every so human social engagement is a cult like but it's coming from fucking religious cultish people yeah like, it, no that, that's the point right like it's all it can't literally be... any time that two people like interact like it's cultish behavior it can't ever be that we have like a moral position or we strongly believe that we don't want to harm people like it can't ever be that because, of course, they wouldn't harm people. We're such good people. We're lovely people. <laughs> Jody, we're, we're the Imperial News cult. I uh, hate to break it to you. God damn it. But we're engaging in cultism right now. You know, I tried my best, and then we just slid right into it. Just couldn't avoid it. So Joel then argues that this trans ideology, not only is it a religious cult, it's also Maoist. It's Maoist and it's about hacking human beings so that they conform. And you mentioned Mao. You're, you're exactly right. It goes back all the way to this ideology, this, this neo-Marxist ideology. We saw it in Soviet Russia. We saw it in Mao's China. This idea, this, it's really an anti-human idea. This idea that there is no such thing as free will. There is no such thing as the human soul. It's a materialist ideology. This idea that human beings are hackable. If we get the right people up at the top, the experts who can just kind of make society work how it should, we can hack the populace. To, to do what they're supposed to do, to believe what they're supposed to believe and say what they're supposed to say. Um, and we, we saw how that failed so catastrophically, um, you know, in, in these places in China and Russia. But I feel like the West really just kind of hasn't had their own reckoning with this ideology yet. Um, like we did with, say, fascism, Nazism, um, it, it's it's mind-boggling to me to see that it's still alive and and well, and and we're still participating in this kind of um, this this cultural pressure, this this charade to conform. He called the Soviets and Mao neo-Marxists. Who are the original Marxists then? I wonder if he's saying, like, it's the trans ideology type people. They're the neo-Marxists that, like, go on from the Maoists and, like, maybe... I don't think that's what he was... Because he was, like, saying, like, neo-Marxists in the Soviet Union and oh. Maoist China. <laughs> like... Huh? Um, but also, yeah, the protracted gender war, um, as Mao famously wrote. And, you know, women hold up half the sky, et cetera, et cetera. They, um, they get into this whole, like, uh, George Orwell. Uh, and also, like, did you ever see the Star Trek Next Generation episode where he's like, there are four lights. 
Have you seen that episode? No. So they're trying to like torture Picard and uh, get him to say something that isn't true, and he refuses to like bend to their like torture stuff. So they there's like these lights, right? There's four of them, and they want him to say that there's like five of them, right? It's like the two plus two equals four, five things. So they they want him to say the wrong thing, but he refuses to bend. So like at a moment of anguish, he just he's like he yells, he's like, "There are four lights." <laughs> And so they're comparing, like, what's going on here to, like, these moments where, like, the world is trying to tell them what's not true. But, like, they're like, but we're not, we have free will and we're not hackable, so you can't, like, break us. But I'm like, no, we're we're pretty malleable. I mean, the next clip I'm going to play begins with him saying that, like, yeah, we can convince people by just, like, having our ideas out there. Well, isn't, like, having your ideas out there part of, like, hacking in some ways like your ideas are getting into the information like of the other people's brains and like converting them or changing their minds right <laughs> but like but like they I don't know like they think that but we can't be moved from our ideas because we have like the free will we're unconstrained by material reality and no matter what you do to us communists we're always going to believe these stupid ideas <laughs> I got nothing like yeah I okay, like sure that's it there's one yeah before I play the next clip where that happens I do want to say like at some point Ezra does say in the middle of this that uh those who donated to the trucker convoy all had their bank accounts seized and he is like very like broad about that that like every truck or every person who donated to the truckers had their bank's accounts frozen and that that is just not true <laughs> So uh, <laughs> I did want to put that in there. Ezra has no money. I I wish. But then we get, so they end their discussion by talking about uh, uh, why censorship of right-wing views is bad, and there are interesting uh, parallels with some of the stuff we discussed in the James Lindsay interview. But, uh, of course, this is about, uh, we, we can change, they want us censored because they know we can change people's minds with our ideas. The cool thing about our worldview is that when people hear it, they're converted. You know, I, I remember in the early days of YouTube before it was all suppressed and, you know, shadow, shadow banned everywhere. Um, you know, conservative, uh, clips, you know, Ben Shapiro debating, you know, Ben Shapiro destroys clips would go viral. And, and my friends were getting won over by these things. They would hear the ideas and they would say, wow, I've never heard that before. It makes sense. So our, our ideas can win if we're heard. And so I, I agree. We need to fight, for our right to be on these platforms. We can't be relegated to the ghetto. We have to be in, in the marketplace of ideas, talking with people who don't agree with us. I, like, listen to what he's saying, okay? We, <laughs> Ben Shapiro found a way to manipulate the algorithm by throwing in, like, Ben Shapiro devastates college campus student, right? He hacked the algorithm, it then made these videos come up more frequently when people searched for things. And it reached more people than it probably should have. And because once you start clicking on that video, all you get exposed to is these like left-wing student wrecked compilation videos that these people went down this rabbit hole and were convinced that what Ben Shapiro was saying was legit, true, and real. But 
You can't hack human beings. It's not possible. <laughs> also, like, Ben Shapiro's still on YouTube. Like, Shadow Band, though. They're all Shadow Band. Mm, the Shadow Band. Of course. How do you know whether or not you're being Shadow Band? Even if you think it, you're being shadow banned because they're on to mm. you. <laughs> True. Google's in my brain. I love Ben Shapiro, like, constantly comes up, like, high in, like, search uh, responses. And even on, like, Facebook and shit like this, they're still one of the, like, most watched Facebook pages. But they're being shadow banned. They just can't get their ideas out there. They just can't get their ideas out there, Vienna. And if only they could get their ideas out there. So in the mailbag segment, Someone writes in to talk about uh, how Marxism is like the atheist faith. And Ezra agrees and says nature abhors a vacuum. So without spirituality, Marxism creeps in. And I found this funny because Lindsay is in fact an atheist. <laughs> and I'm also like, what about Ayn Rand? <laughs> we need Jesus. That's it. That's, that's why, you know, without, without Jesus... We just, we get filled up, we get filled with Marxism. <laughs> mm -hmm. So now we're on uh, to Thursday, and on Thursday, Ezra spends the entire episode arguing that Jerry Diaz got a COVID bribe. So Jerry Diaz, president of Unifor, he resigned because he said that he was taking, uh, that he had some sort of illness that he had to deal with. Turned out that he's now being internally investigated for taking fifty thousand uh, dollars. That had to do with some sort of like COVID rapid test thing. Uh, the the thing is, so Ezra thinks the only reason why Diaz was pro vaccine is because he got this money from a COVID test company. And the thing is, like details on the story are like still coming out, and it's being investigated, and there's not a lot of information. So like, he's just speculating. And it would be speculation on my part to say, like, why Diaz... Like, honestly, probably Diaz just liked $50,000. I don't think it was motivated by his desire to some... Like, he, like as if Diaz would have gone against the liberal government uh, unless he got the $50,000 bribe. Like, I, I don't know. Yeah, it's very disconnected from reality, as usual. Because Diaz has always been pro-liberal, so and he and he was that with well, I mean maybe there was bribes going on back then too, but like I don't know, but like I don't know. There's tons of other, the other thing you could say is there's tons of other union leaders as well. I mean like that was the other part of this like segment is Ezra speculates that maybe there's other union leaders out there as well who also got bribes, and that's why they weren't challenging the vaccine mandates either because it's all <laughs> the bribes are everywhere. They're coming to get us. Justin Trudeau got bribed. Yeah. By the companies, too? Yep. By himself. SNC-Lavalin all over again. Uh, yeah, and I, I just have to say, Jerry Diaz sucks. Like, I, I don't care. Like, whatever. Go after Diaz. Go for it, Ezra. I don't care. Mm-hmm. And then we get to... Uh, oh, yeah. So I will say, the, the other thing that I thought was funny in this is there was a clip of a uniform member that Ezra plays. And the uniform member says that if the union and company are saying the same thing, so in this case being pro-COVID vaccine, then the union isn't necessary. <laughs> and I'm just like, this is stupid. In part because it's like, 
I mean, the company and union could agree on tons of things all the fucking time. It doesn't mean that it's not necessary, uh, in part because there could be future times when you will disagree and want the union there. (laughs) Such the union, the company, um, believe that oxygen is necessary for breathing. Therefore, the union is not necessary. Yeah, exactly. I mean, if they're going to conclusion that you don't need the company. Like, why is it never, like, it's always like, oh, you don't need the union. It's like, no, I don't need, I don't need the company. Like, you know, Vienna, that's a good fucking point. <laughs> mm-hmm. The interview segment of uh, this day as well was also really lame. So it was with somebody named R.C. Maxwell, who works for Project Veritas. Project Veritas is a... Uh, James O'Keefe, they're these people who just make up shit and produce like these viral videos that try to claim that like the Democrats are secretly trying to like manipulate things, whatever. So the recent thing that they got involved with is I guess they somehow got their hands on Joe Biden's daughter's diary. And that's why they're under like legal trouble right now, because they're being investigated that they might have obtained it illegally, right? So I think it has been at this point confirmed that it actually is Joe Biden's daughter's diary that she wrote when she was like really young. And they got it out of a house where the Bidens stayed for a brief period of time. I guess it was like left in a box and forgotten like either way. So they are being investigated, Project Veritas is, by the Southern District of New York. And part of what they're on Ezra to complain about is stuff has come out to show that the Southern District of New York sort of went against what the court was saying that you, there was limitations to how they could investigate Project Veritas because they're journalists and it would be a First Amendment violation. But the Southern District of New York went and investigated any, anyways. Now, mm-hmm. these are the claims that are being made. But again, most of this is coming from Project Veritas themselves. And that's another reason why I'm like, I don't fully believe it yet. So yeah, if this is a violation of the First Amendment, I'd be like, okay. We should consider that in like bad Southern District of New York. But at the same time, I'm like, I want to wait. I don't trust Project Veritas, you know? They could, this could be the first time they have a point, but like, let's wait. Chody, you don't, you don't trust the people whose whole job is lying to tell the truth? Yeah, I I don't trust them. (laughs) That's an interesting perspective. I mean, and this totally, like, sidesteps the issue of, like, how did they obtain this diary? And did they break the mm-hmm. law to get it? Which is the whole reason they're being investigated. Like, they almost barely touch on that in this interview. Uh, they kind of just ignore all of that. So now we get to March 25th, the Friday. And Ezra, pl- like, the, the opening monologue is really boring. It's literally as literally Ezra just plays clips of world leaders criticizing trudeau mostly far-right people in various countries all just being like trudeau you came to our country and yet you hate truckers bad (laughs) and uh yeah what else what else is there to say about that but the final interview is with again the national post writer rupa sabramaya who we had talked before about I think last week or two weeks ago she appeared on uh, The Rebel and she was promoting the fact of like how the truckers were not racist because she's not white and the truckers were nice to her and uh, 
that was pretty much what the interview was about then. This time when she's on, the premise of the interview is that journalists, specifically Justin Ling, lied about guns being at the Ottawa occupation. And they talk as if Justin made this up out of nothing. And they are mad that no one has retracted the story. Because it, there was no guns. According to them, there was no guns at the Ottawa occupation. So therefore, Justin Ling is a bad journalist. No one called him out and should have retracted his stories for claiming that there was guns at the Ottawa occupation. That's kind of like the premise. Sure. Now, at the time Ling wrote the article, there was a stolen van from Peterborough that contained a large amounts of weapons. And an XRCMP organizer of the truck convoy, who was in Ottawa, made a recorded statement that was posted to social media claiming that the RCMP was going to plant weapons from that stolen van on the truckers and use that as a reason to, like, get rid of the occupation. Mm -hmm. And because of this, this led to a lot of people speculating that there were already guns at the occupation. And the reason why people suspected that is because this occurred just shortly after, you know, a bunch of guns was found in Coots, <laughs> Alberta. And so now people are like, are there guns at the occupation? Very weird to just come out with this statement saying the RCMP is going to plant guns on us. Almost like you're preempting the fact that guns are going to be found. So this, yeah. this was the context that Justin Ling was writing his article. And at no point, like, did he say 100%, definitely guns are at the convoy. And then, like, so why would he retract that? <laughs> that just seems like I'm talking about the things that are being talked about regarding this trucker convoy, you know? They, they also claim, like, guns were, like, they said guns weren't found at the thing, but some guns were, but, like, most of them were legally... Uh, held by the people and stored in their truck cabinets and stuff like this. So it's like, and like, sure, it wasn't the same as what was going on in Coots and all that fun stuff. So fine, whatever. <laughs> but it's just like weird that th this is like what what they have to talk about. But do you do you notice, Fiano? So that's it. We're done. That's the week. But I have one final question for you. Do you notice something that was missing this week? Any talk about Ukraine? Well, they, they briefly touched on some Russia stuff here and there. But what was like, there was a huge news story that happened this week in Canada. The Liberals and the NDP oh, yeah, working together. <laughs> Ezra doesn't, it, it doesn't come up once. Not even a brief side mention. Nothing. It's never mentioned this entire week. And I don't know what to make of that. I said coalition, but it's not a coalition. It's whatever the agreement or whatever it is. And uh, Yeah. I mean, you can read a bunch of news articles on it if you want to know what's going on. It's a bit complicated, weird, people yelling about it. But it's just weird to me that Ezra avoided this, and I don't know why. He had the whole week planned out already and didn't want to change the schedule. <laughs> I'm wondering, like, he just doesn't have, like, an angle on it yet? Yeah. He's probably waiting to see what people are saying about it, and then... Because the right wing had a field day with this, of being like, this is like communist like communism coming to Canada. And given all the stuff we talked about on the show today, like, it's just weird that it never got brought up, not even once. Yeah. 
weird. <laughs> Ezra secretly votes NDP. That's the that's the takeaway. I was gonna make a joke to come up with like a uh, fill in the NDP acronym, but for something Ezra would like, <laughs> but I couldn't do it. Could not do New it. New dipshit party. Uh, <laughs> sure, why the new dipshit party with Ezra Levant. Read the Communist Manifesto. Uh, it's very basic. A lot of it is doesn't really hold up that well um and even like i don't know if it's in the edition that i'm posting but like even in some of like the introductions that Engels did and marx did like they both were like we have problems with this um we wrote it in our 20s you know oops but it's a but like even then they were like oh it's a at this point a very important historical document and People keep wanting more of them, so we're gonna keep publishing it, publishing it for like that reason. Um, but it's also you can see, but, you know, if you read it, they're not hiding anything. They're pretty. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> they're like they're open in what they want, um, and it's not a like secret conspiracy or whatever for the most part. Like it's just hey, we want communism. We want a classless, stateless society. Um, we have nothing to lose but our chain. Yeah, like, I I don't know. Like, it's just kind of a, like, it is a, like, basic document that, like, I think most people should read. And also, you should read it so that the next time you hear some dipshit right-winger talking about what's in it, you can be like, um... You're an idiot. Fuck off. <laughs> because, you know, it's also, like, it's always the only thing that these people read of, like, Marxist literature. Like, you know, when Jordan Peterson yeah. debated debated Zizek and was just like, oh, in the manifesto, blah, 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 blah. And, like, dude, that wasn't... Amazingly, things have changed since fucking 1848. Or 44? Like, yeah, it's just... God. I mean, but Like, they're when... wrong about the manifesto <laughs> itself, let alone the century and a half plus of literature that comes afterwards. I mean, that's what I was going to say. Even when you get a figure like Lindsay, who not didn't... He didn't just read the manifesto. He went on to read Herbert Marcuse. But even then, they still get all of that wrong, too. So it's... <laughs> Or they come close. Yeah. I mean, today they were at least close. I mean, he got part of the manifesto right. At least we could say that. But uh, it's the details beyond that that they're really flimsy with. The historical context, I think, is the better way of putting it. They're terrible with the historical context. Yeah. Just like reading comprehension as a whole is not their strong suit. Very, very true. And hopefully this episode will be a testament to that. <laughs> And if you support and enjoy what you've heard so far, please give us a few bucks over on patreon.com slash imperial news.
If you want to stay informed about what we are doing, you can also find us on Twitter at Imperial News with a Z. We have a Discord set up. We do Twitch streams every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. You can find videos on our YouTube channel, and you can find all the links in the show notes of this episode. Lastly, you can email us any question at imperial.fake.news at gmail.com. Special thanks to my friend Mason Tickle for the transition beats. You can find his work at masontickle.com. Thank you for listening. And Vladimir Putin and J.K. Rowling, you both are equivalent degrees of canceled. Albumbia, Albumbia, how lovely are your wheat fields.